I was struck by the number of women taking part in the rioting at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th by violent supporters of former President Donald Trump. Who are these women, I wondered? How have they exploited technology to expand their reach and influence in the alt-right movement? And have technology companies done enough to counter and combat their disinformation campaigns and hate messaging? Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Here to answer those questions and more is Sayward Darby. She's the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. Darby is the editor-in-chief of The Atavist Magazine, a forum for great long-form journalism. Darby previously served as the deputy editor of Foreign Policy and the online editor and assisting managing editor of The New Republic. As a writer, she has contributed to The Atlantic, The Washington Post, L and Vanity Fair, among other publications. Sayward, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you so much for having me. What led you to start researching the role of women in white nationalism and to write Sisters in Hate? So I began this project immediately after the election that preceded this one. So, or I guess four years prior. So uh, in 2016, uh, just like January 6th of, of this year and you know the aftermath of the election in 2020 has led a lot of people to ask questions about you know, the, the, the state of the, of the country and, uh, and to ask questions certainly about women's complicity um, in, in the far right in this country. I had a similar question after 2016, but in that case, rather than a, you know, a, a number of women who were suddenly in the news, it was the opposite. There were no women who were ever quoted or mentioned as being part of the so-called alt-right movement, which had gotten you know, a good amount of press attention over the, the course of the election because of the, the movement's affinity for uh, Trump and the way that he projected dog whistles to them. So I would read articles about the alt-right and find that there were always mentions of how they were angry, angry white men and it was so misogynistic and a woman was never quoted. There were no photos of women. There was just a complete absence of women. And that struck me as wrong um, from the standpoint of how social movements actually function and what is required for social movements to function, particularly social movements that are all about making sure you're preserving uh, you know, an identity, a way of life, uh, you know, a race in this case, you literally need women for that. And history has shown us that women have been very uh, deeply involved in many oppressive racist regimes and organizations. So I went looking for the women. They were quite easy to find. They were exactly where you'd expect them to be on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and, and all of these different platforms. And I then dove into these questions of who are they? Why do they believe what they believe? How did they come to believe what they believe? But also why are we not talking about them? Why have they been erased from the wider narrative about the far right? Uh, and so that was, yeah, exactly four years ago, basically, that I that I kicked this into gear. Um, so when you say, when you use the phrase dog whistle, for those of us who are not familiar with that, what do you mean? So yeah, a dog whistle is essentially coded language, suggestive language. So I mean, frankly, you could argue that Make America Great Again and America First are dog whistles um, because, you know, embedded well, first of all, there are echoes of actual Klan slogans from the 1920s. Um, but then on top of that, there within that is embedded this idea of America as being, you know, very much 
for white Americans. Um, and so dog whistles are things where, you know, you're not, you know, Trump isn't using the N-word or Trump isn't saying, you know, America for white Americans, but the language is coded such that people who do, you know, believe these more, uh, you know, hateful ideas will, will hear what they want to hear in that language. Um, so that's, you know, a dog whistle obviously is something that only a dog can hear. <laughs> um, and, uh, and in this case, you know, it's language that people who know what to be listening for can, can hear, you know, the truth inside it, basically. So you were so deep into researching all of this when the January 6th riots took place uh, at the U.S. Capitol, and you see all of these women, not just participating, but several of them, you know, taking the lead, others who were, had been involved in planning, and two women actually died of the five people, you know, in addition to the Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick, there were two women, Ashley Babbitt, you know, she was an Air Force veteran, a former Air Force veteran, and, and she, you know, you, you saw images of her, like, pushing through the window and getting killed by a U.S. Capitol Police officer. And then you had Roseanne Boyland, who may have been crushed to death by fellow rioters while trying to push through a police line. When you saw this unfolding, what were your thoughts, having done all of this research that you had already done? It was certainly horrifying to me what happened on January 6th. And it was definitely one of those moments I don't think I'll ever forget. It's kind of like watching 9-11 transpire <laughs> on TV. Uh, you know, you're, you're watching this protest that is suddenly moving closer and closer and then suddenly is inside um, the halls of, of government and you're witnessing, you know, history in that moment. So I, I certainly was horrified, but I was in no way surprised. And I think that there were two reasons for that. One was that they had literally been projecting um, <laughs> online, I should say, you know, using the internet as a bullhorn to say, this is what we're going to do. We are going to go, we are going to do this. Like, this is the, this is the plan. Um, and I don't know how they could have been more explicit in a way that would have gotten, you know, uh, media attention or, I mean, governmental attention is obviously difficult to, uh, to get when the government, <laughs> when the administration is on the side of what you want to do. Um, but they had literally been spelling it out. And then I think on top of that, the, the reason I was not surprised about women specifically was that in the course of my research, uh, I had been hearing the ways in which for the last four years, but also stretching further back in time, the far right has been making appeals to women as important actors uh, or, or telling them they can be important actors in this space, that in times of great struggle and in times when, you know, revolution is necessary, which is the way that they talk about, you know, the present moment, uh, that women will, you know, need to be on the front lines, shoulder to shoulder with men, that in, you know, better times, in, in good times, women can be at home with their families and taking care of children and doing the things that, you know, quote unquote, women are supposed to do. But in, in, in moments where it feels like something has been taken away, when it feels like, uh, you know, the, the enemies of all that they stand for and all that they believe in uh, are winning, which this is how, you know, the, the election and um, the Biden administration was cast by the far right, uh, that, that women should be on the front lines too. Um, and I should say, just as a quick aside, you know, I do not know the specific politics of every single woman who showed up there. I do not know if they would all consider themselves white nationalists. I'm sure that many of them would, in fact, not identify that way. But I think that what's interesting about the evolution of the far right is that identification matters less 
in some ways than what it is that you actually believe, the actions that you take based on those beliefs, and also where you're getting your information. And I think that the, the far right has done a very good job over the last several decades, frankly, of poisoning different wells on the internet, if you will, of, of information and saying, oh, you know, you're interested in natural living um, or you're skeptical of vaccines. Oh, let us pour a little bit of what we believe into the water. And so you start consuming the same uh, you know, conspiracy theories and uh, grievances or what you're told should be grievances, um, even if as, as you're consuming them, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, this is making me a white nationalist. So that's a long way of saying, I said it was going to be an aside and here I am going off on more of a tangent, but, <laughs> but I think it's important to recognize that uh, you know, the, the, the people who were at the Capitol, they were absolutely avowed white nationalists, white supremacists, but then there were people who would say, no, no, I'm not that, you know, I'm just a patriot, but that in fact, they are and had been, you know, consuming the same ideas, uh, regurgitating the same ideas that the white nationalists and white supremacists had. I think that's a really important point. Um, and uh, and a fair one to make, uh, just so that we can better be better represent who may have been there that day, and, and but also sort of some of the underlying subtext, you know, to what's out there uh, on YouTube and all of these other channels. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute or two. But um, one of the women that you featured in your book, uh, Lana Loktev, said in a speech in Stockholm in 2017 that it was, it quote, it was women that got Trump elected. And I guess to be really edgy, she continued, it was women that got Hitler elected. And that was kind of an interesting uh, point that she was trying to make. And I wonder if you could give us a little bit of history. Obviously, there were many, many women on the front lines fighting uh, against Hitler in Nazi Germany. But uh, at the same time, there's also this history of women uh, uh, who were, you know, deep into, uh, into white nationalism, who were, you know, really fighting on behalf of Hitler. Sure. Uh, yeah, the the Third Reich is such a fascinating, uh, you know, example of white nationalism, you know, made manifest in the most extreme way, in the most extreme way possible, um, and coming into, you know, real power, real institutional power. And there was for a long time in the, the decades immediately after World War II, there was kind of this, I don't know, idea that women were not as complicit as men in the regime. And this actually tied in ultimately with my fascination with how women were not being included in narratives of the alt-right. And I think that a sort of benevolent sexism that dominates uh, media, dominates certainly, or has dominated you know, the, the study of, of history, means that women are seen as better angels, uh, that they are seen as having better instincts than, than men, more compassionate instincts than men. And after the fact, after something terrible has happened uh, that you know, many people were complicit in, women sort of get swept to the side um, in terms of their accountability and their, their complicity in these regimes, you certainly see that with regard to the antebellum South. Uh, you know, only recently there's a fantastic book that came out a few years ago uh, about women who were, uh, you know, very, very important, or how women were very, very important actors in the slave trade and in the actual ownership and management of slaves. Um, 
and how they were just written out of history for the longest time. And so something similar, I think, happened after, after World War II. And I say that based on, um, there are two really wonderful books about, well, wonderful if you can you know, really bear reading about the Third Reich, but um, there is one called Hitler's Furies by Wendy Lauer, who is a historian, I believe at Claremont McKenna. And then there's another great book, uh, kind of a classic in the field called Mothers in the Fatherland by Claudia Kuntz, who is a professor at Duke University. And Hitler's Furies is a history of women who specifically served on the Eastern front of the Nazi regime. And by served, I mean, you know, because it was a hyper-traditional quote unquote regime um, that you know, believed very deeply in, in traditional gender roles, that they were secretaries, they were wives, they were mistresses, they were, they were in these kind of supportive roles on the Eastern Front, but some of, I mean, and some of them, to be clear, were, you know, in, in more supervisory roles, um, uh, you know, where they, they could actually commit violence. But point being, uh, the, the book is a look at the ways in which women were complicit in, in upholding the structure of, of the regime on the Eastern Front. And then Mothers in the Fatherland is a bigger look at, at Nazism and women's role in it, at the ways that women were cast, yes, as mothers and wives, but that being a mother and being a wife was, was very much presented as a political act. Being those things was political because the importance of a wife and a mother and, you know, by extension, the home that she builds and, you know, the children she raises and the things that they believe, that was all vital in, in the Nazis belief system to the perpetuation of the Aryan race. And so, again, after the fact, I think a lot of people looked at the Third Reich and said, oh, well, you know, women, you know, they didn't have a choice because this was a misogynistic regime and, you know, they were, they, they had to do this. They were just wives. They were just mothers. And there's this minimum, there was this minimization of what those roles actually meant to, to the regime. Um, and to, uh, to Lana's point, uh, and that's a really quite a speech that she gave at this far right conference in, in Stockholm. It's true that women got Trump elected because as we all know, you know, a plurality of white women voted for Trump both times. Um, and then with regard to Hitler, it's fascinating because Hitler technically wasn't elected. He lost a presidential race, but then, and I have a footnote about this in the book, um, the Nazis uh, got enough votes in a subsequent parliamentary election, I believe subsequent parliamentary election um, to become the dominant party in the Reichstag. And that is actually what led him to be appointed chancellor. And if you go back and look at um, the history, and there's a, there's a particular study that I, that I found that, that explains this, between 1928 and 1932, the Nazis on the parliamentary front around the country did indeed win an increasing number of votes from women. And the women who were surveyed, or I, I forget exactly how the research was done, but they reported casting their votes out of self-interest and a concern for the future of German society. So you can absolutely imagine Imagine that transplanted onto the Trump era and white women today saying, I'm voting out of, you know, concern for my community, my family, and my belief in quote unquote America first. Um, so there are definitely eerie parallels uh, be between those two points in time. And you find some of these really interesting themes. Uh, you uncover them as you started, um, you know, reaching out and talking to 
uh, how many, I got dozens and dozens of women and doing all of the research that you did. Can you kind of paint a broad picture of the sisters in hate, as you call them, sort of the age, race, race, other demographics, you know, education, socioeconomic levels, um, and some of the themes that you were starting to hear over and over again, you know, living the traditional life, anti-feminism, you know, uh, all of that, having more children, <laughs> uh, things like that. Sure. Well, I think with regard to your first question, you know, one of the important things, and I don't know, maybe one of the more dispiriting takeaways <laughs> uh, from, from this research is that there isn't a clear pattern in terms of who becomes a white nationalist, why they become a white nationalist. Like, yes, they are white. Certainly there's that. Um, although there are people who identify as part of this movement who consider themselves nationalists, quote unquote, and support white nationalism, but are in fact, uh, you know, of, of, other, of other races or backgrounds. Um, but, you know, think that yes, in fact, everybody should, you know, keep to themselves to their through their own kind, but that's a, a whole aside. But if you're talking about white nationalists, you know, they are white, yes, but then they come from quite a mix of backgrounds. Uh, they come from, you know, different socioeconomic circumstances, different educational circumstances, different, you know, family circumstances. I think there's a desire when we think about people who radicalize uh, to imagine that something terrible happened. Um, to explain this, right? That there was some great trauma um, or, or some, you know, seismic event that made them think, you know, or to, 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 to uh, curdle them somehow um, in the way that like milk curdles or whatever. But often that's not the case. Um, and in the women um, I, you know, researched and, and spent time you know, in some cases getting to know them, but in other cases, you know, really getting to know about their lives via the way they had documented them online over the years. It was more an accrual of things over time. Um, a sense of life is not turning out the way that I wanted it to turn out, which didn't necessarily mean that something catastrophic had happened, but more, you know, jobs weren't showing up in the way that they'd been told they would if they got, you know, a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree, um, or feeling like they didn't have a voice in the way that they wanted to have a voice. Um, a lot of these women, um, particularly who women who are in their 20s, 30s, early 40s, you know, are very much grew up as creatures of the internet um, where you know so much of your life is lived um, and so much communication happens online and there was this sense of I'm not being heard um, you know I'm kind of lost in the cacophony of things or a sense that too much was being asked of them because they were uh, you know being told well actually that thing you said was racist or have you considered this or have you considered that and feeling very um, targeted somehow which I mean to be clear is in my view, ridiculous from the standpoint of, uh, you know, you know what what really matters, what are the gravity of these of these grievances. So they have these, you know, ideas that they are the, these kind of sense of senses of harm that they are, you know, nurturing inside themselves, and then white nationalism tells them that they are right. Not only that, they are righteous. Um, because the things that are being done to them are, you know, wrong on some almost like deep ethical existential level. Um, and it also says, join us. And if you join us, you will have those things that you feel like you are lacking. One of the interesting things about studying this space is realizing that radicalization is a very individualized process, which isn't to say that there aren't trends and currents and things to pay attention to, but it really does have to do with, uh, you know, an individual's 
need set and a feeling that some piece of their need set is not being met and white nationalism meets, meets it um, from the standpoint of the narrative it gives them to explain their place in the world, um, the power it gives them, the sense of belonging it gives them. Um, you know, I could go on and on about, about the, the needs that white nationalism might be filling yeah, and I think that those needs are seen very clearly in the three women that you focused on. Tell us a little bit about them and, and how you selected them and, and how they kind of represent the, the movements, so to speak. So uh, the first woman is Karina Olson, who was a neo-Nazi between about 2008 and 2012, I want to say. Uh, and her story was interesting to me because it showed both the dynamics of radicalization and de-radicalization. And uh, there are certainly plenty of people who, who fit that mold, but I think that Karina's story had a very um, almost foundational quality to it, where in presenting her story, readers were really able to see this is what radicalization looks like, this is what de-radicalization looks like, and then you know this is what the aftermath of that looks like. And uh, she grew up in Oregon. She is a trained embalmer, so actually I've been in touch with her recently, and she's had quite a year uh, because of COVID uh, and the number of deaths. Um, she now lives in the Seattle area, and the number of deaths she's been. Um, dealing with. Uh, but her, her story, I don't want to, you know, I don't need to go into too much detail, I guess, but, but her story is very much one of feeling like she didn't have a sense of purpose and a sense of community and white nationalism, which she did discover online, gave her that. And the second woman is Ayla Stewart, uh, who goes by or went by when she was more active online, the name Wife with a Purpose. And her entire mission is about building a traditional life, being a traditional wife. And she's part of a community that in the last few years has, you know, gotten some attention and an online community called TRAD, so short for, for traditional. And her story is one of, she used to identify as a liberal feminist. She uh, was pro-immigration, anti-death penalty, um, you know, very much kind of a crunchy leftist. But she was a person who was always seeking to be the best mother in the room, the most unique mother in the room, um, you know, to, to be the person who everybody looked up to as a mother. And over the course of embracing that identity, she has six children, over the course of, you know, embracing that identity and trying to uh, differentiate herself from other, from other women, uh, she started moving farther and farther to the right, getting very disenchanted with feminism as she defined it. And ultimately she became a very vociferous anti-feminist and, and white nationalist. And so her story is interesting because it allows some delving into these issues of traditional gender roles that, that permeate the history of white nationalism and also to look at religion and its role in white nationalism because she ultimately became a, a conservative Mormon and, and then kind of left Mormonism behind but very much still considers herself a conservative Christian. Um, and also to look at anti-feminism as uh, very much intertwined with white nationalism and as a, also as an important gateway to white nationalism. And the third woman uh, is Lana Lochtef who you mentioned earlier and she is a bit of a queen bee, as I have described her um, before in white nationalism. She and her husband run an alt media platform called Red Ice, which 
for a long time was not banned from social media, but uh, you know, recently in the last year, year and a half uh, ha has been banned, uh, but still very much operating. And it is a hub for white nationalists. It is a hub for conspiracy theorists. Um, it is just a, a platform for really dispersing any, any number of bigoted um, and paranoid ideas but Lana is interesting because she presents it all under, you know, she's an attractive, intelligent woman. Um, she too is from Oregon. And uh, she very much has, she's for instance, better known and more widely like quoted and, and recognized uh, on the far right than her husband. Um, and she puts a palatable face on things, uh, which, you know, really uh, is, is both savvy and terrifying. Um, and her story is really one of someone who wanted to be that kind of person, who wanted to be a figure that people listened to, a figure that helped people realize things about themselves, uh, you know, a, a figure that people turned to for some kind of wisdom, so to speak. And uh, she she came from more of a, I guess, kind of libertarian, almost slightly anarchist, like you know, grungy mid '90s mentality. Uh, but she ultimately radicalized about, I guess, nine or so years ago uh, to to become, you know, a, a arch conservative white nationalist, ultimately. Uh, and she and her husband's platform has been um, very influential. Uh, the, the sort of research nugget that I think about a lot is that when the massacre happened at the mosque in New Zealand. There was a research paper done looking at the rhetoric uh, that the shooter had used in various, I think, online, like, I don't know if it was a manifesto or just, you know, an aggregation of language that the, the shooter had used online and then compared it with rhetoric of various far-right figures. And Lana was one of the people whose rhetoric most similar, what was most similar to his rhetoric. Yeah, it was so fascinating to read that, you know, I mean, the way that they were able to identify those patterns, I think, was super interesting. And when you look at these women, one of the uh, underlying themes, if you look at how they've how they've evolved, uh, I think their evolution as leaders in white nationalism uh, evolved parallel to the rise in technology, right? Social media and all of that with, with Karina starting with Stormfront, the old dial-up bulletin board system, right? And then slowly as social media began to evolve with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and of course going on to Discord and Telegram and all of these different, and you can just kind of see that evolution, right? And you you even saw it through going back through the, the Wayback Machine too, you know, which shows you the history of websites and things like that. Yeah, I it, it it really was interesting to see. First of all, you know, every single one of the women that I found was radicalized online to a certain degree, which and usually to a, a very large degree. Which isn't to say that you know there are not things that were going on in their personal lives that had nothing to do with the internet. But uh, you know, the internet was absolutely the tool that you know got them from point A to point to point B in a in a radicalization sense. And I think what's interesting to me is that the internet has been a boon for racists and has been since its 
earliest days, like in the early 1980s, uh, when you had dial, not, not even dial up, you know, like what were they called BBNs? I always forget exactly what they were called, but you know, like the very early ways of kind of dialing into a system and having a conversation with people, white nationalists started using them very early on and had conversations and published articles about how the internet was going to be this great tool for them because it would allow them to communicate over distances. Uh, it would allow them to communicate outside of traditional channels and would keep prying eyes away. And so this is a long way of saying that the internet, when it comes to the internet, white nationalists have always been ahead of the curve. Uh, you know, Stormfront, which you mentioned, you know, it's been around since the mid nineties. It's still going strong. It is very creaky and uh, old fashioned by internet standards at this point, but it is still, you know, frequented. And we've seen white nationalists be early adopters um, and very vigorous users of, of many, many different technologies over the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And what, what I will say though, is that if you then look back in time, so in a pre-internet period, white nationalists have often been, you know, at the forefront of thinking about ways to use new communication strategies uh, that are you know, evolving and, and coming to be democratized. Uh, they have always been very savvy about utilizing those tools. So whether you're talking about you know, creating newsletters, uh, you know, making their own magazines, starting their own publishing houses, uh, you know, certainly in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of talk about how they were using music, popular music, um, and starting their own record labels and things like that. Um, and so it is very much, yes, the internet without question has been, you know, a, a huge uh, asset for, for the far right in a way that, you know, something along the lines of, you know, magazines was not. But at the same time, it is in keeping with a tradition. It is in keeping with the ways that these individuals, people who believe in white nationalism um, have utilized communication tools over time. And, and you say something really fascinating that, you know, even though as far back, you know, in the 1990s, you know, and you even had people like Don Black, Alabama's former KKK leader saying the potential for the net uh, for organizations and movements such as ours, he said, is enormous. We're reaching tens of thousands of people who never before had access to our point of view. But you also say that till like 2003, uh, it was very much what you describe as a cloaked strategy and that the, the whole intent was to widen uh, the so-called Overton window. Can you describe what that is and, and what the strategy was and, and how that kind of changed uh, over time? Sure. Um, I think that there's this assumption um, for folks who aren't acquainted with white nationalism. And I certainly count myself, you know, in this pre-2016, you know, this was a space that I that I knew about. I grew up in the South and um, I was very aware of white supremacy um, and, you know, the, the harm that it does. But uh, I was not acquainted with, you know, the actual inner workings of, of the far right. And when I, when I started looking, looking into it um, and, and becoming better acquainted with it, it's not that if you're in this space, people are using, uh, you know, extremely racist language necessarily, um, or are saying things that are just completely, you know, oh my gosh, I've never heard something, you know, I've never used the N word used so many times, or I've never, you know, heard people say such anti-Semitic things. Like, yes, absolutely, that material exists. But that exists deeper in, if you think of it as almost like concentric circles, that's at the very heart of white nationalism and at the very heart of you know, available information uh, on the far right. 
And as you move outward in the concentric circles, you get this widening of the, the Overton window, you know, this idea, the sociological idea that um, if, if you are constantly widening the topics that are considered uh, acceptable um, or the viewpoints that are considered uh, socially acceptable, um, you know, you're letting, you're starting to let in, uh, you know, people who might otherwise be considered on, on the fringes. And white nationalists have definitely been for, for years, you know, trying to find ways to widen the Overton window to get their viewpoint into what would be considered a more socially acceptable space. So uh, certainly in the, you know, later 20th century, there was a lot of discussion amongst like the David Dukes of the world, and other, you know, white nationalists who were prominent to say, okay, like, let's do it. Let's stop with the, the Ku Klux Klan robes and the Nazi symbolism. And, you know, think about how we can appeal to the average white American um, and make this seem like just another way of thinking about politics. And, uh, and I think that people who get radicalized into white nationalism those are the channels through which they often come. That it's not, oh, you know, don't you hate people who aren't like you? Don't you, you know, feel angry about the existence of, you know, black people or Jewish people or, you know, whoever uh, a target might be? It's more something along the lines of, do you consider yourself a patriot? Do you consider yourself a good American? Do you, do you miss the way things used to be? Do you value your safety and you know the integrity of your community? And what is baked within that, and I'm certainly you know riffing, and there are lots of other uh, types of, of language that uh, serve a similar function, but what what is in that is veiled and coded language about what is normal. Um, and this idea that whiteness and that white Americanness is kind of normal and the thing that we should all be striving to protect and, uh, you know, to inhabit, certainly. Um, and then once people kind of buy into that language, yes, then absolutely, it's a slippery slope into, well, I'm just saying what everybody else is thinking by, you know, using racist language or, uh, you know, believing racist things. Um, but that, that entry point uh, is often it can seem very benign, but in fact is not. And they have worked hard to make it seem benign. And uh, you've mentioned a lot, you know, you discuss a lot of the, the different digital platforms that are online platforms that are out there, right? Obviously you've got 4chan and you've got BitChute and you've got Twitter and all of these channels, but you give YouTube a special mention for becoming perhaps like the biggest channel for spreading hate and hardcore conspiracy theories because, you know, even if you're searching for something relatively benign like Tucker Carlson, you know, you quickly get pulled into kind of this rabbit hole of fake news and, you know, it's... It, how, how do you see YouTube's role compared to all of these other platforms? They're all powerful and they've all been buffeted with these issues, but YouTube seems to be one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I would say Tucker Carlson is not benign. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, we could we could go down a, a long uh, rabbit hole about, or I should say digression about Tucker Carlson's, you know, full on uh, dive into- Right, but I'm just, I mean, if you even look for like a Fox News host, <laughs> Yeah, 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 no, get, I understand what you're saying. Something, it something pulls more up mainstream. more and more negative algorithm. The algorithm pulls up more and more negative things for you very, right. very quickly. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think that, you know, YouTube, first of all, YouTube was very slow to react to the fact that there was hateful 
and just you know false uh, information on on the platform. And it also had this powerful algorithm, certainly. Um, and the far right also has been very savvy about flooding YouTube. And uh, and then you know when YouTube started to actually ban white nationalists to you know flood other platforms with their content. Um, and so the whole idea is not just, you know, the algorithm's going to, you know, push you in a more extreme direction, which it absolutely does. Um, but also that if, if you're just kind of flooding the market, so to speak, you know, people are more likely to wind up at the content you want them to wind up at because there are just more opportunities uh, for, for them to do so. Um, and so YouTube is interesting in no small part because of the algorithm, yes, but then also just the the power of video and that people, you know, anybody could get a microphone, not even get a microphone. Like I've watched white nationalist videos that were, you know, shot on somebody's uh, iPhone or whatever, but that people could put their, put their information out there and find ways that they intersected with other content creators. And so, oh, you agree with this, like we can start making videos together, or I'll feature you on my channel, um, or recommend your videos. And it, you know, starts to become this very uh, interconnected, like ecosystem. I think that simultaneous to, you know, people beginning to, to really put their content on YouTube. And certainly I should say too, you know, you have more power, not just individuals, but more powerful uh, media entities that are on the far right. So like Red Ice, for instance, um, that Lana and her husband run, um, you know, we, we've seen any number of, I wouldn't call like the Epoch Times or Newsmax white nationalists per se, but you know, these, these uh, arbiters of, of disinformation um, and bigotry, you know, starting to create YouTube channels and really push their worldview through, through that platform. Um, but I think Two, you know, this this all happened simultaneous to the rise of this anti-media sentiment that certainly Trump, you know, spent four years hammering um, and saying, you know, fake news, enemies of the people, you know, mainstream news is bad news. And certainly there were people who then, you know, said, well, Fox is the only <laughs> news I care about. But then I think there were a lot of people who, and I, and I heard this when I was doing my research, people who said the first place I go to when a news event happens is YouTube. I go to find, you know, the voices that I trust and care about on YouTube to tell me the real story, you know, to pull the cloak back and tell me what really happened. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is when, you know, content is always filtered through a white nationalist lens, um, you know, truth is not really, <laughs> not really the point, propaganda is. And so I think that, you know, YouTube and content creators on YouTube, white nationalist content creators on YouTube, very much benefited from YouTube's lax approach to their content, um, to the algorithm, the ability to flood the platform with information. And then on top of that, the fact that more and more people who considered themselves on the right, uh, conservative or you know even further to the right, were starting to turn to alt media because they were being told that the mainstream media was bad. Um, and so, you know, I, I could go, and maybe this is where we're going next, but you know, I really do think that uh, powerful platforms like YouTube uh, we're just incredibly slow to respond to all of this um, and to, to see it as a real problem.
And, and that's exactly where I was going. You read my mind. I mean, I, I, was, <laughs> I was struck by another quote from Lana in your book, uh, you know, and she says to her followers, quote, be loud. When women get involved, a movement becomes a serious threat. Uh, what can we expect to see from, you know, the sisters in Haiti in coming months and years and sort of how serious a threat is it? And what do tech companies and the U.S. government need to do to sort of counter and combat what we're seeing unfolding every day? Yeah, I, you know, I will confess to not being terribly optimistic. Uh, I think I say this at the end of the book that I'm just a bit of a pessimist by nature um, and having studied this and, and seeing the ways that white nationalism has actually been very resilient over time. I think that, you know, certainly in the Obama years, there was kind of this sense of, oh, we've, we've, you know, we're post-racial, we've passed this, uh, you know, important milestone, like we're on our way to a better America was a lie that we were telling ourselves. Meanwhile, the far right was gathering a lot of steam um, in no small part online. Um, and now what we're seeing, and the reason that I feel rather pessimistic is that we've gotten to a point where there's really no middle ground between people who have a vision of a more progressive America, a more inclusive America in which, you know, the dismantling of white supremacy is an ongoing project and people, millions of people, you know, who voted for Trump, um, some of whom identify as white nationalists, some of whom are white nationalists without even realizing it, um, you know, who have pretty much the, the polar opposite view. And I think that what's scary about that is, you know, it's, it's not as though the pendulum will settle in the middle somehow. Um, I think it's going to keep swinging back and forth. Um, I'm not a political scientist and maybe political scientists are listening to this and saying, no, you're wrong. And you're just, you know, you're just a sad sack pessimist, but that's, <laughs> that's very much where, where, where I am from a, you know, thinking about politics writ large standpoint. And with regard to white nationalists, specifically in the far right, you know, they, they lost something insofar as, you know, Trump losing the election means they don't have someone in power who, uh, you know, they, uh, even even if he was frankly never far right enough for the most you know avowed white nationalists, but he was about as close as as a president can get, and they they lost something insofar as he's not in power. But I mean, they also the far right has always thrived on having a lost cause, um, quite literally, you know, the lost cause of of what happened uh, in the Civil War and this attempt to rewrite history after the fact and to create a new America in, in their, you know, racist um, retrograde image. And I think that the Trump era, you know, is already becoming something similar where something has been lost, which means that we need to fight to regain it. Um, and I think you'll see white nationalists kind of taking advantage or certainly I shouldn't say kind of certainly taking advantage of that almost outsidery position, even though what's fascinating about the way that they, you know, center themselves as outsiders and say, you know, this is where we're, we're fighting, you know, against power, really, they're not fighting against power, or they, sorry, they are the power, like they are, you know, white, white supremacy is like the baseline of everything in the United States. And so they're fighting to keep something in place, as opposed to dismantling it, but they will act as though it's the opposite, because, you know, that's beneficial to them from a propaganda standpoint. So I point being, I think you're going to be seeing, you know, a shifting of rhetorical strategy to a certain point, taking advantage of new technologies, which we're already seeing. You know, I remember right after the election, when a bunch of far right types and you know, also just Fox News types were like, I'm going to parlor, I'm done with Twitter, you know, ban the president, this is terrible, like I'm going to parlor. And I remember on Twitter at the time, there were a good number of kind of progressive, 
you know, pundit types or journalists who were mocking, and, and certainly just, you know, average people who happen to use Twitter, um, were mocking of this. And they were like, yeah, yeah, go use your knockoff, you know, Twitter platform, you know, good riddance. And I remember talking to a historian who studies the far right and specifically, you know, the late 70s to early 90s. Uh, we were side messaging and I was like, I find this terrifying because literally what they're saying is we're going to go create our own echo chamber over here. And the creation of echo chambers is something we should always be scared of. Um, and then lo and behold, you know, a couple of weeks later, January 6th happens and we find out that Parler was a very important platform from an organizing standpoint. And I think that, you know, certainly you know, Parler has been put through the ringer since then. Um, and we've seen, you know, various technologies be put through the ringer when they are found to be, you know, useful to white nationalists. But the problem is that they keep creating new ones. It becomes a game of whack-a-mole. And I don't, you know, to your question about solutions, I think that it's a very difficult, it, it is, it is such a existential problem, <laughs> not just for technology, but for the United States, frankly, that there's no, you know, oh, here's how you do it. Here's, here's how we, you know, end this scourge. It's an all hands on deck situation where you need people at tech companies putting, you know, humanity and the well-being of individuals over profit and expansion. Um, you need people who are willing to recognize hate speech for what it actually is. Um, and not kowtow in the way that we've seen Facebook do again and again and again, you know, oh, you know, conservative commenters, commentators say that, you know, we're not being fair to their content, that we're, you know, censoring them when in fact, like, no, that's not happening. Um, but giving ground where ground should not be given. And I think too, uh, you know, there are law enforcement questions, absolutely. Um, you know, in the wake of January 6th, you know, arresting, prosecuting individuals who, literally attempted a coup in the country, but law enforcement and, you know, tech regulation, um, you know, internally at companies and whatnot, like that's, those are just pieces of the puzzle. You know, the solution also lies in how we think about education um, and how we think about, you know, raising new generations of people to, you know, recognize where white supremacy is in their lives, how to combat it and how to, you know, have a more progressive vision of the country. You know, I think it has to do with empowering voices of color and voices of other, you know, people in the United States who who are not white or do not identify as white, and you know, helping just just bring new voices into you know the various halls and and institutions of power. So this is a long way of saying I think that you know I don't think in my lifetime the scourge of white supremacy is suddenly going to going to be gone, but I do think you know we depending on you know, I'm a writer and I got interested in this topic and kept going with this topic in part because I felt like this was the way that I could contribute. I could learn as much as I could about something that I had never been taught and share it with, you know, the wider world. Um, and, you know, people who work at tech companies can, you know, do their part inside tech companies. People who work in the government can do their part inside of government, et cetera, et cetera. But point being, it's an all hands on deck situation if we really want to make inroads into white supremacy and make it such that the pendulum doesn't want to swing back and forth, that instead, you know, it does start to settle over a, a more, you know, generous vision of America as opposed to, uh, you know, swinging toward uh, one that's more laced with with grievance and a false idea of what the country is and, and, and should be. Great. Sayward, thank you so much for joining me and for this fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
Sayward Darby is the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. She is the editor-in-chief of The Atavist magazine. Darby previously served as the deputy editor of Foreign Policy and the online editor and assistant managing editor of The New Republic. As a writer, she has contributed to The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Elle, and Vanity Fair, among other publications. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.